I can hear every game. From the first pitch to the last out of the World Series. What about my hometown announcers? They're on the SiriusXM app. They built it knowing you would come. Ray, there's even an entire radio channel filled with experts talking baseball all day long. Is this heaven? No, Ray. It's MLB Network Radio, Channel 89. This summer, experience Negro Leagues 101, a celebration of the 101st anniversary of the founding of the Negro Leagues at the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum in Kansas City. For more information, plus event schedules, video exhibits, and safety guidelines, visit nlbm.com and follow the museum on Twitter at NLBMuseumKC and follow Bob at NLBMPrez. Bell swings, hits one deep to left, toward the wall, fan back, looking up, and there it goes! Josh Bell hits his first career walk-off, a three-run home run to left! Swinging a fly ball out to left, deep, Deaja back to the wall, looking up, he leaps, and there it goes! A game-tying home run by Josh Bell! Swinging a high drive to right, Williams going back to the warning track near the wall, he leaps, and it's good! Well, joining me on the show, I am thrilled to welcome a young talent who I've gotten a chance to know via virtual experiences and and a trip to the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. Great young man, power-hitting first baseman. Now for the Washington Nationals, Mr. Josh Bell. Josh, welcome to Black Diamonds. Awesome. Thanks, Bob. Happy to be here. It's so great to have you. It's great to see you. Let me ask you this. Did it dawn on you when you put on that pirate uniform that your name is Josh and one of the greatest players of all time would had Pittsburgh ties? His mm-hmm. name was Josh. Did that even dawn on you at the, you know, when you when you put that pirate uniform on and kind of understanding the history of black baseball in that city? Yeah, I know when I first signed with the the Pirates, I was, you know, 18, 19 years old. Um, and I, I flew up, um, go through the tunnel. Um, you probably know what I'm talking about. You go through the tunnel, it's beautiful scenery, drive up to the stadium. And one of the first posters, huge poster, you know, an 80 foot poster, 60 foot poster is, is Josh Gibson. And so I, re- I remember looking and talking with my family about it. Um, and, you know, four or five years later, I'm finally there putting on the jersey for the, the first time. I, I know that um, when I first put on that Graves jersey, now that was something special. Uh, that was, you know, that that feeling of almost like a wool um, fabric. Wasn't yeah. quite obviously the jerseys that they were wearing back then, but just to get that different feel on the body, you, you felt different. You felt like, uh, um, hopefully like they felt, you know, putting on the jersey. Um, so... You know, I was excited for it. You know, obviously, this guy is a, a legend. Obviously, this guy has, um, you know, so many different stories about him. I, I know my favorite one was that uh, that Oppo Taco, that opposite field home run that he hit um, with one hand and into the upper deck. And I was <laughs> like, that's that's the kind of pop and confidence. I think it's that to, to play this game, you have to feel empowered. You have to feel like, uh, you know, you, you know you're the best out yeah. there. And I feel yeah. like that's that's one of the guys where you, you can't do stuff like that. Uh, that's that's what legends are made of. They believe that they can, so they could. You know yeah, what I'm I, saying? I, I honestly don't think that Josh thought anybody could get him out. 
I really don't. That's I don't the think he thought play. anybody. Yeah. That's the only yeah, way no, he, yeah, no. And 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 the power where it's almost legendary is very real. You know, you start going through and you you start looking at some of these incredible feats of Gibson that sometimes we forget about the fact, Josh, that he was a great hitter. Not mm-hmm. a good hitter, mm-hmm. but a great hitter with tremendous power. You know, and, and I was looking at your second at bat in Major League Baseball. What happened? Here's the pitch. And a high fly oh. ball to right field. Stand up and ring your bell. It's a grand slam for Josh Bell. Oh, my word. Almost cleared the seats. Granny time for Josh Bell. And listen to this ovation. That was the most electric I've ever felt a stadium, um, at least up to that point. That was that was a cool way to, to be introduced to, to Major League Baseball, for sure. Yeah, that, that, that's Josh Gibson-esque there. <laughs> Seizing the moment. Because Gibson, I think, the bigger the stage, the more he wanted to be there in, mm-hmm. in that position with that big bat in his hand. And they were playing in front of huge crowds, not only in Pittsburgh, but virtually everywhere that he went because everybody wanted to see Josh swing that bat. And, and the same thing when they moved to D.C., and they started playing their home home games in Griffith Stadium. They were they were outdrawing the Washington Senators, and, yeah. and Gibson's in there putting on a show. Now you talked about just missing hitting one in the river, mm-hmm. but you actually hit one in the Allegheny River. Here's the one zero. High oh. drive to right. Talk about killer B. Josh Bell, ring your bell. Headed toward the Allegheny to tie the game at two. A bell ringer. Tell us about that shot. Yeah, that's yeah, some so, Josh Gibson stuff, too. I mean, I was locked in. Um, I, I feel like, you know, if you play this game, you, you know what it feels like to to know that if the pitcher makes a mistake, you're not going to miss it. Um, and I was right there. Um, I ended up hitting two pitches uh, into the, the river. But I, I'll say my first one, the first one into the river, definitely felt better off the bat than the second. But that first A-B was actually against my, my Texas Rangers. Um, the first A-B of that game, I hit a slider um, down and away into um, the gap opposite field. So I'm going up into my next at-bat, and I'm like, okay, I just hit off-speed. I know he's coming heater. Like, he's not going to give me another slow pitch. I know he's coming heater. He's probably coming in. So I'm saying, I was like, hey, the first pitch was up and away. And I could kind of see it out of his hand, like he was trying to get it in, released a little bit too early. I was like, he's not going to miss this one right here, and I'm not going to miss it either. So ended up squaring it up. That by far is best contact I've ever made on a baseball field. Um, ended up clearing the fence, clearing the seats, um, and making it all the way out into the river. So that was definitely special for me. Holy cow, Greg, look at the projected distance on that one. 472. Wow. My goodness. One of the longest home runs you'll ever see. Holy moly, was that a bomb. I'm going to run these numbers by you. This is Josh Gibson playing in 1941 in Mexico. And his teammates were Cool Papa Bell, Martin DeHigo, Mm -hmm. Leon Day, Willie Wells, and Ray Dandridge. And Josh hit 374 with a 754 slugging percentage, scored 100 runs, 33 homers, 
124 RBIs in 94 games and actually had the nerve to draw 75 walks while striking out 25 times. I wouldn't pitch him either. <laughs> yeah, yeah. In, in the words of the immortal Sasha Page, if a man can beat you, you walk him. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and that's what I try to remind people, because sometimes people will say, well, you know, the statistics were so incomplete in the Negro Leagues. And so it's almost their kind of backhanded way of saying, well, Josh was probably good, but maybe he's not as good as old Bob is saying he is. But what you'll find is Josh hit everywhere, mm-hmm. everywhere. And, and I can tell you the numbers are very much complete when you start talking about playing in Mexico, Puerto Rico, Venezuela, mm-hmm. Cuba, mm-hmm. the Dominican Republic, places like that. It's not that easy. To me, it's not that difficult to discern that this is not mythical about yeah, you, you can't fake that. You, no, you no. can't fake those numbers. That's no. it's not inflated. It's not, you know, everyone's talking about our balls being tighter, so they're going further. You're not faking that. These 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 numbers are uh, are numbers of legends. That's 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 legendary. Um you, you take me, put me back in those days. I'm not doing that. You know, <laughs> I might have some good games, but I couldn't be locked in and that, you know, obviously he's probably the best right-handed bat in the game. Yeah, I, I go back to what you said earlier because as much as people like to reflect on the home run that he hit completely out of Yankee Stadium, and obviously there are those who said, well, it almost it hit the like stanchion, would have went out. Jack Marshall, who was there, Chicago American John, said it went completely out of the ballpark. But for me, it's like it goes back to what you said. That was impressive. But for me, his most impressive feat that for me was him being fooled on that changeup and hitting that ball in the right field upper deck mm-hmm. one-handed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. And, and and everybody said, because he was such a jolly giant of a man. You know, big guy, but just a very affable, likable kind of guy. And, and Josh, they say he hit that ball, and, and as he's circling the base, he's just giggling. Because mm-hmm. he, he had the kind of power where... I'm not sure he knew how strong he mm-hmm. really was. You know, as I tell people, he had the kind of power that if Josh poked you in the arm, it hurt, but he didn't realize he was hurting you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, no, he was special. And, and so was baseball in both Pittsburgh and D.C. And it's interesting that the city of Pittsburgh had two of the greatest baseball franchises not in black baseball history but in baseball history mm-hmm. in both the homestead grays and the pittsburgh crawfords mm-hmm. and between the two of them it was almost like a civil war mm-hmm. yeah come Posey over at homestead and gus greenley over at pittsburgh and they were both raiding each other's talent and it's always been debatable about the greatest baseball team in Negro Leagues history. Some say the 1935 Pittsburgh Crawfords, five future Hall of Famers on that team. Others will say the 1942 Kansas City Monarchs, one of the greatest pitching staffs in baseball history. But there are a great number who will say it was the 1931 Homestead Grays. And that Homestead Grays team in 31 
also had five future Hall of Famers, including a sixth in Satchel, but Satchel didn't stay long. He was having contract issues with mm-hmm. Cumberland Posey, and so he eventually left. I don't even think he played maybe one or two games mm-hmm. with the Grays that year. <laughs> and it was ridiculous how good that team was in 1931. You know, historian Phil Dixon, again, I'm going to run these numbers by you. Historian Phil Dixon published works where he collected uh, and collated every box score available for the 1931 craze. And according to his research, they finished with a 143-29-2 record. Gibson batted, and Gibson was 19 years old at this time. Josh hit 390 with the team leading 40 home runs. They had Hall of Famer Oscar Charleston, who batted 346 with 58 doubles and 19 home runs and 26 triples. Third baseman Judd Wilson, who's in the National Baseball Hall of Fame, hit an estimated 486. And outfielder Vic Harris batted 403 on that team. The great lefty Williams won 23 games and was joined in the 20-game club by George Chippy Britt and Willie Foster and Smokey Joe Williams, all winning 20 on that team Mm -hmm. in 1931. I mean, when you hear that about a place that you once called home, what does that make you feel like? I can only imagine what it would be like in that clubhouse. I mean, as a baseball player myself, you know, when when things are going well, there's a lot of storytelling. There's a lot of laughing in the clubhouse. Just the overall vibe is is, is something uh, that's that's kind of hard to explain. But when people are having success, it uh, it's contagious. So when you have one guy hidden, the next guy's hidden. You know, it's everything. It's real easy when the bases are loaded and nobody's out and you're up there. You know, I would like to have that at bat at all five of my bats tonight if I could. Um, <laughs> and, you know, the, the pitchers are rolling. Offense is going to be rolling, too. You're not on you know, your legs all day playing defense. You're in there. You get those three outs and you're back in the, the dugout getting ready to hit, put some on them. So, uh, I mean, I can only imagine what the, the overall buzz was like in the city as a whole um, and the crowd. But, it makes me wonder what it was like in that clubhouse because, you know, it's, it's a very special fraternity. Um, but I, I'm sure it was a lot of fun. Oh, it, it, it had to be. And you talk about some personalities. They had some personalities on that ball club. And, and Vic Harris would later become player manager of the Grays and led them to nine consecutive titles. Oof. Yeah, nine consecutive titles for the Homestead Grays between Pittsburgh and then over to D.C. Mm-hmm. So that's why we talk about them as one of the greatest baseball franchises of all time. Vic Harris does not get enough credit. When we talk about the great managers in our game, Vic Harris is not a name that immediately comes to mind. And I think somebody, sometimes people kind of disregard because when you have so much talent, they would think winning is just automatic. But as you well know, the more talent that you have, you've got to manage these personalities. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You're trying to keep everybody happy. Mm-hmm. And, and so sometimes it's more challenging to manage a group of 
extremely talented ball players because you do have to manage their personalities mm-hmm. as well. And so I don't think he gets nearly enough credit when we start to talk. We'll talk about Rube Foster. We'll talk about C.I. Taylor. We'll even talk about more contemporary guys like the great Buck O'Neill, who was a tremendous manager. But you rarely hear Vic Harris's name mentioned. Mm-hmm. But you don't win that many titles with that many thoroughbreds and not be a good you have to have a really keen understanding of how to lead men with, mm-hmm. when you have that much talent around. Yeah, a thousand percent. And I will say that uh, you can only be good for so long in so many, in so many people's minds in baseball. But in order to, um, I guess, when you said nine consecutive seasons, it's almost like leading, um, leading horses out. You know what I'm saying? If one goes astray, you got to get it back in line. You know what I'm saying? Especially if they're all thoroughbreds. You know, everyone wants to lead, but it takes a special man to be a, a leader of leaders. I'll say <laughs> that. And he, he obviously did that. And I can only imagine nine consecutive seasons, man. He was, he was probably going to sleep a happy man. Yeah, no, that, you know, winning, winning, winning has his way of trying to cure some of the ills that sometimes go along. You can cover it up with winning, but mm-hmm. when things don't go as well, that's when stuff starts to really happen. But, you know, that legacy of great baseball that you've been a part of, and I don't know, I have not seen whether or not the Nats are going to salute the Negro Leagues this year or not, but what would it mean for you? And I'm hoping that they are to have worn that Homestead Grays jersey in Pittsburgh and then to put that Homestead Grays jersey back on again now in D.C.? Well, prayers up, fingers crossed. Hopefully it, it, it can happen. Um, you know, it's it's just, you know, my whole life seems like a dream. You know, baseball comes and goes. You have good games, you have bad games. But when I look back, you know, I want to be able to say that, you know, I've represented, you know, people of my race, my color, um, and just the struggle. You know, I, I feel like uh, it, baseball wasn't easy for, for them back then, but life wasn't easy off the field either. You know what I'm saying? They were leaders of men. They were heroes. They they were, um, you know, champions for the, the people. Um, and for me to be able to represent that here in the big leagues, I, I think it's an awesome opportunity, and I, I just hope that it happens. Yeah. Well, I, I had the opportunity – to welcome you and some of your teammates and coaches when you were with the Pittsburgh Pirates last year, the only team that actually had the opportunity to come and visit the museum and Derek actually petitioned MLB to allow it to happen. And then we made all the necessary arrangements so that we could create a quarantine-like environment for, for the club as we were dealing with, of course, the pandemic. What was that experience like for you? That's heavy. Um, first and foremost, I'll say surreal. Uh, I think that uh, you go in and you, you could just tell it. It was almost like an aura around the, the, the museum as a whole. Um, and I kind of broke away from the, the group for a little bit. And I was reading through the, the newspaper articles, you know, just to see what, what the the times were like back then, what they were saying about these players. Um, and it was just very interesting to see, you know, the media coverage of these ball players. Um, and, and and like, like I keep saying, it's just stuff of legends. You know what I'm saying? I'm, I'm looking through these jerseys. I'm looking, I remember seeing some of the buses that they were riding on. Um, and then you look back in my life and I was complaining about being in the minor <laughs> leagues. and Oh, we got this bus, you know, I, I got to make it up to the big leagues. That was the big leagues for them. 
You know what I'm saying? That that was their opportunity to put on a jersey and play the game professionally against the best in the league, against the best to ever play the game. Um, and I feel like going to the, the museum as a whole is just an opportunity for me to understand that. Um, it was the best playing against the best. And it's a, a really cool place to to show, you know, all the things that they represented, not only on the field, but off the field, you know, because I wouldn't be where I am right now if it weren't for the Negro Leagues, if it weren't for them paving the way for me. Um, you know, I'm forever thankful and I'm forever thankful for you for allowing us to come in and teaching us a little bit more about the game that we know and love. Um, so thank you as always. No, man, it, you know, Josh, it honestly never gets old for me. Every time that we get the opportunity to welcome a young ball player of any sport, but particularly one that makes their living in our game it just never gets old. I, I love being able to relate the stories, what it was like for those players, and just the sheer passion that they had for this game. Because as you well know, you had to love it in order to endure the things that they had to endure. And that to me is where the bond is shared. And I don't care what color you may be, it really boils down to just love of the game. But I do think you're right that this experience, while I think it's so pertinent to so many when they come here, is that it provides perspective. Mm-hmm. It, it provides real perspective uh, for the exact same things that you just mentioned. You know, sometimes it's human nature for us to complain. You know, we will always find something to complain about, mm-hmm. even when we don't have anything to complain about. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes we do need perspective. And there were many times where major league coaches would come in to the museum and they'll say, well, you know, my guys were crying about a late night charter flight, mm-hmm. a late night charter flight. <laughs> and then you come in and it's one of my favorite quotes in the museum. And it's from the late great Ted Double Duty Radcliffe, who coincidentally was also on that 31 Homestead Grays team. that And Ted was one of that second tier of guys who should be in the National Baseball Hall of Fame, but it's not. Ted Double Duty Radcliffe earned his nickname Double Duty. Mm-hmm. And the great writer Damon Runyon saw Duty catch a Satchel Page shutout in the first game of mm-hmm. the doubleheader, mm-hmm. took off his catcher's gear, took the mound Mm -hmm. and threw a shutout Mm -hmm. in the second game of the doubleheader and said he was worth the price of two admissions. Mm -hmm. Ted Double Duty Radcliffe from that day forward, he died in 2005 at 103 years old. Well, there's this beautiful quote from Duty that says, every 4th of July, we would play four games in one day. I would catch two and pitch two and sleep 35 minutes in between games. Now, all of a sudden, that late-night charter flight doesn't seem so bad after all. So it really is about perspective. Oh, yeah. I can only imagine. I I know that you were saying uh, that they were complaining about the heat on on the buses. And I was like, man, I used to sleep on the ground of the bus in the minor leagues comfortably. You know, I'd have a little sleeping bag, a little pillow, Tempur-Pedic pillow, and these guys, I'm looking at a bus from the 30s. I'm like, golly. Like, <laughs> but like you said, it's all perspective. It's all perspective and it's all love for the game. Because um, you can always walk away 
Um, but it's it's definitely an honor to to be able to put on a jersey. Yeah, and, and you you just hit something there because that's the other side of this. Man, it would have been easy for them Josh, to say quit. Mm-hmm. Say, okay, this is too much. I'm not going to do this. But they never did. You know, they refused to succumb to the notion that they were unfit to play this game. Mm-hmm. So I'll show you. And that was really their spirit. I'll show you. And, and so to me, that's why so many ball players, irregardless of what color they might be, they relate to this story once they're introduced to the story. You know, as I tell people, my late mother would say, you don't know what you don't know. Mm-hmm. And so our job is to introduce this story to as many of those who make their living in our sport as we possibly can. And that's why, for me, I get so excited about welcoming ball players to the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. We got to do this uh, this year when the Texas Rangers were in town and nice. to have Taylor Taylor Hearn here. Mm-hmm. You know, we all did the virtual program right after the George Floyd murder and to have Taylor walk through this museum. It was very similar experience mm-hmm. as you're mm-hmm. relating right now. You could see the pride emanating from him. And each, each and every one of you, particularly the African-American and Hispanic ball player, you carry a little piece of the Negro Leagues with you when you walk out on that field. Now, many of them don't know it, but I know that you understand it. When did the Negro Leagues become top of mind for you? Well, I feel like, just like you said, you think about the game that we play. You think about the lineups that are out right now. You think about the superstars in the game. And I'll just name off a few. You know, obviously you have Mike Trout. Then you have Mookie Betts. And you have Aaron Judge. You have John Carlos Stanton. You come to our team, you have Max Scherzer. You have Steven Strasburg. You got Trey Turner. You got Juan Soto. And so what I'm saying is it's it's like a melting pot. It's a... Um, no matter where you look, no matter what lineup, you're going to see people from all over the world. Yeah. But it doesn't look the way that it looked. These lineups aren't the, these lineups, if it weren't for the Negro Leagues, if it weren't for the game being played, even though they were saying you can't play in our league, they kept on that legacy just for the love of the game. And I think that that's what's the most you know special thing about this. I'm playing next to Juan Soto, next to Trey Turner, next to Kyle Schwarber. We're from all over the world. Yeah. We look, you know, nowhere near. I, I got dreadlocks and, you know, <laughs> uh, you got guys with blue eyes on the team, brown eyes, you, you name it. But uh, we're all playing for the same love, for the opportunity to win, and for the opportunity to just play the game that we grew up playing, you know, in the backyard um, until the sun was going down. You know, this is this is stuff that dreams are made of. So I'm just forever thankful for, I guess, the, the legacy and, and, and for the opportunity. Um, to, to play this game that I love and to, to play truly against the best in the world, no questions asked now. There's no asterisk mark. There's no, oh, in this league or that league. Thank goodness for them laying down that foundation, breaking through barriers. Now, you know, if, if you're going to hit 330, hey, it's legit. No questions asked. You know, no ifs, ands, or buts. So I'm thankful for that. Yeah, and, and, and that's the progress that was made through the sacrifice of those players from the Negro Leagues who literally introduced this game around the globe, the way that they played the game. 
exciting and, and daring with a flair. Mm-hmm. And, and that's why I love what the Spanish-speaking athlete brings to the major leagues today because they're playing the game the way they played it in Negro League mm-hmm. with a joy, a level mm-hmm. of joy. Yeah, it's your job, you know, and I know it's a challenging job. But there is this level of joy that you see when they come out on the field. Man, that was the Negro Leagues. Despite all the hardships that they were enduring, and it was arduous getting from point A to point B. But Josh, when they stepped out on that field, they were, they were going to put on a show for those folks who had showed up. Even if those folks who had showed up wouldn't serve them a meal Mm-hmm. After the game was over with, mm-hmm. they were going to put on a show because they loved what they did. And, and to me, that's what we see now as this game being the global game that it is. Because you're right. You look up at, you look at a major league roster on any given day. And there are places, there are, I guess you'll see names penciled in mm-hmm. of players from around the globe mm-hmm. because it is by far the most diverse professional sport of them all, Mm -hmm. even though our numbers have dwindled. And I know we're all working in earnest to see ways to increase those Mm -hmm. numbers of American-born Blacks. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it has to be special to be there and and be around so many different people. Now, growing up as a kid, were there a number of Black kids on teams that you played, or was it just a select few Black kids? Um, I, I would say that I, it would lean more towards a select few that I knew, you know, across the leagues that we'd play. And we had, I wouldn't call them divisions, but they were, you know, we're playing all in the same tournaments. We had the same caliber. Uh, I forget what it was called, like U Triple S A or something like that. Um, um, and we knew each other. And then once you got into high school, you knew, okay, so this cat's over in that high school, this cat's over here. Um, and, um, but it was always like, for me, I, I played, you know, it might've been one other black player, um, growing up, you know, a couple different seasons. I had, you know, another black teammate, but I also had, you know, a couple of seasons where I had an Asian teammate, obviously some Hispanic kids growing up, especially being in Texas. Uh, so it wasn't as diverse as you see here in the big leagues by any means growing up in Texas, but you definitely saw some color uh, across the tournaments that we were playing in. Yeah, yeah. You know, I asked Taylor, even as he got to the major leagues, and he was one of a few, if any, other black ball players in that, lo- American-born black ball players mm-hmm, mm-hmm. in that locker room. And I asked him, I said, did you ever feel your blackness? You know, because when you're, you grow up, And maybe that's the norm because that was the way it was growing up. I tell people all the time, I grew up in a town where it was probably 70, 80% black, Mm -hmm. but no white kids went to my high school, even Mm -hmm. though there were white kids in my town. Mm -hmm. But I really didn't think about it because that was just simply the way that it was. Mm -hmm. Did you ever feel your, your blackness in a major league locker room? I think that when I first got called up, I was really lucky because I had the MVP and Andrew McCutcheon. I had Josh Harrison right there. Um, and then I had like Jung Ho Kong, you know, I had people from all over, um, a lot of color in that, in that locker room. I, I think that, um, and I, I might be speaking for some, some other players as well. 
you get so caught up in the dream of playing and you can get focused so solely on the game, right? And I think that last year with George Floyd, Ahmaud Aubrey, um, that the Central Park incident in New York with the, the, the racial tension and the conversations that started, I, I think that 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 was one of the first times where I kind of felt alienated. Like I needed to go step outside, call my parents, you know what I'm saying? Call my sister. Um, that was one of the first times where I felt like, you know, although I was having a conversation, I didn't want to step on anybody's toes. Um, I didn't have, you know, Kutch there with me. I didn't have Harrison there anymore. So it was a little bit different. Um, and I would say that that was the first time where it was glaring, you know, nobody in the yeah. stands. And, you know, every time you check your phone, there was something else going on, you know. But yeah. No, that's that. it's really interesting. And I, and I know that many of the African-American ball players kind of experienced that. You know, I talked to CeCe Sabathia and he, and he told me, he says the best time he ever had playing in the major leagues was over at Milwaukee, where I believe they had five or six brothers on the team. Mm-hmm. You know, because you can't say it felt more comfortable. Mm-hmm. But they had people that could relate to things that were going on in his world mm-hmm. that maybe others could not necessarily relate to. And he said it was the most fun that he ever had playing this game. And he's been obviously involved in this game and doing some amazing things outside the game now that he's retired. And, mm-hmm. you know, I also want to tip my cap to all of you guys over at the Player Alliance mm-hmm. with what you're doing. Uh, I think is significant and very special. Uh, I could not be more proud of that group of athletes who are dedicated to making a difference, not only in the game, but in our society. Mm -hmm. I I would say, you know, CC Curtis Granderson, those guys are, you know, taking the whole Alliance, you know, and, you know, just putting on a rocket ship shit. It's just gone. And I think that, you know, from this point, looking back at the last year, all the things that have gone with the, the pull-up event um, all over the States, uh, so many kids being able to get, you know, COVID supplies, you know, and uh, one of the, you know, obviously the worst part of the pandemic, um, we were able to, to hand out supplies and bring communities together all across the States. You know, I was looking at all the recaps and it, it was just such a cool uh, organization to be a part of. And I'm, I'm really excited to see where it goes next. Cause I know that this is not something that's going to die off. I, I think that this is going to be something, you know, I'm going to look back, you know, 40, 50 years, it's still going to be a part of the league. Yeah. Well, I know that the next time that you put on that Homestead Grays Jersey, and, and I hope it's this year, I'm pretty sure it will mark the first time that a player has played in that jersey as a member of the Pittsburgh Pirates and as a member of the Washington Nationals, the two cities in which the Grays operated in. And that will be pretty doggone special. And uh, one last nugget that I'm going to share with you. At age 31, 1943, playing at Griffith Stadium now, the Homestead Grays had moved to Griffith Stadium in D.C., And again, as I mentioned, they were outdrawing the Washington Senators, who that was their ballpark, owned Mm -hmm. by Clark Griffith. Josh Gibson hit 486 with 12 home runs and 22 doubles. He's 31 years old at that time. And the writer Brad Snyder said of Gibson that he hit hit 37 home runs, 
He had more home runs over the Griffith Stadium left and center field walls in 1943 than the entire American League. <laughs> yeah, I was just locked in. I could only imagine. <laughs> and he's sick at that time. You know, now he's starting to have mm-hmm. these severe mm-hmm. headaches. Mm-hmm. He's sick because, as we know, he had a brain tumor. Mm-hmm. But what you had there in D.C. with those juggernaut teams that they had in 42-43, you had Buck Leonard, who's in the Hall of Fame, and that rare Negro League player who played his entire career with one team. He never left the Homestead Grays. Now, he might go out of the country to play, mm-hmm. but he always played for the Homestead Grays. Never left the Grays. You rarely see that in the Negro Leagues because mm-hmm. they were jumping from team to team wherever mm-hmm. they could make more money. But Buck mm-hmm. Leonard was consistent, but it was almost, I think, identical to the way he played the game. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Leonard was a first baseman. Great first baseman. Mm-hmm. And a left-handed, left-handed first baseman with line drive power. Mm-hmm. And so he and Gibson are in the middle of this Homestead Grays lineup, which was just absolutely lethal. The late great Buck O'Neill tells a story that the Monarchs were playing the Homestead Grays and Satchel's on the mound. And Satchel had thrown Buck Leonard three or four consecutive off-speed pitches mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that Leonard had hit foul down the first baseline. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, the old adage about Buck Leonard was like trying to sneak a fastball past Buck Leonard was like mm-hmm. trying to sneak sunrise past the rooster. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, Buck says Satchel was going to try to get this fastball by Leonard. Mm-hmm. He says Leonard hit the ball so hard down the first base line that it ripped the webbing out of his glove. <laughs> mm-hmm. Buck says he calls time. He goes over to the mound. He says, hey, man. Don't you throw him another fastball mm-hmm. today. You're going to get me killed over here. <laughs> and so Clark Griffin is watching Leonard play this dazzling first base, mm-hmm. ripping line drives all over the ballpark. Great hitter. He had over 400 when he was 40 years old. Oof. And he's watching Josh hit balls where no mere mortal had ever hit them in his ballpark. And he wanted to sign them both in the early 1940s Mm-hmm. But he backed off and he backed off because, number one, he knew that he was going to be ostracized by mm-hmm. his peers. Mm-hmm. They were going to fight against this. But the other side of the coin was or the other side of the ledger in this case was. Those black folks were filling up his ballpark. Mm-hmm. He's getting a percentage of the gate and likely all of the concessions. Mm-hmm. And so if he signs these star, star players from the Negro Leagues. Mm-hmm. He's going to put the Negro Leagues out of business. But also, he's going to take revenue away from, him, from himself. Mm-hmm. And so he made the decision to stay with the money. And mm-hmm. again, as I tell people all the time, whenever they say it ain't about the money, it's always <laughs> about the money. <laughs> Can only imagine if they could have played in the league. I know Jackie tore it up, but Josh Gibson in there out of his oh, man. some thunder. Yeah, no, and, and, and Buck O'Neill would describe him in this manner, that he had the eyes of Ted Williams and the power of Babe Ruth rolled mm-hmm. into one dynamic package. He hits one, and, and they still debate about whether or not he hit the ball 700 feet or not. 
he hit one where it hit the, I guess, the post that was 580 feet away from home plate. And it was always believed if it doesn't hit that that area of the ballpark, keep going. It would have kept going and would have traveled over 700 feet. You know, so yeah, the legend and lore around him is tremendous. And in many ways, Babe Ruth was Paul Bunyan. And Josh Gibson was our John Henry. Mm-hmm. He's our John Henry. And, and you know what? I don't ever want to lose the legend and lore surrounding John Henry mm-hmm. and that John Henry being Josh Gibson. I hope these stories live forever. Man, we couldn't be more proud of what you're doing, not just on the baseball field. You know, we all get to enjoy what you do, how you go about your work, but everything that you're also doing off the field, uh, we admire that as well. And and I thank you sincerely for being a guest on Black Diamonds. Um, It's been fun, man. It really has. And I'll be checking you out from afar. It has been fun, and I can't wait to see you again, Bob. Can't wait to check out the museum. Hopefully get a little bit more time to just, you know, sit in there. I feel like you definitely can't get – it would take me weeks to get through the, the whole place, but I'm excited to get back in there. I'll chip off a little bit whenever I can. Yeah, no, nah, we're looking forward to welcoming you back and bring some folks with you uh, and and share this history with them because, again, whether they know it or not, they are all a part of this story, and so – Continued success to you and, and the Nats. And like I said, don't beat up too bad on my Braves. No promises. <laughs> no promises. <laughs> and it's great to see you, man. Thank you so much, John. Awesome. Thanks, Bob, as always. Coming up on the next episode of Black Diamonds, an in-depth look at the queen of the Negro Leagues, Effa Manley. If you enjoyed these stories and want to hear more, Please give us a five-star rating and leave a review. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Pandora, or wherever you get your podcasts. Black Diamonds is also available on the SiriusXM app, free for most subscribers. Just download it today and tap Podcast. For more information on the Negro Leagues and the legends of the game, please check out our website, nlbm.com, and follow us on Twitter at NLBMuseumKC. Black Diamonds is part of the SiriusXM Podcast Network and is hosted by me, Bob Kendrick, president of the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. Additional voiceovers provided by Darnell Samuels. Editing and sound design by Rob Moore. Andy King is the director of sports podcasting for SiriusXM. Special thanks to SiriusXM's Senior Vice President of Sports Programming and Podcasting, Steve Cohen, and Vice President of Sports Programming, Chris Eno. SiriusXM Podcasts.